0: You can subscribe to these shows and get early access through kevinbarrett.substack.com And you can also get there by way of truthjihad.com Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, finding interesting people to talk to from all around the world especially people who can cast some light on the uh, darkest shadows, <laughs> the areas where the mainstream narrative completely breaks down. I'm happy to be bringing on my veteran state colleague, Sami Jamil Jedala. He is a uh, Moroccan-American, currently back in Morocco. He's an international business consultant and runs a wildlife foundation in Morocco. And we just recently had some communication about the witch hunt against qatar for not being woke enough for the woke brigade and uh things related to that anyway it's it's good to talk to you sammy how are you doing
1: yeah thank you thank you just minor correction i'm a palestinian american actually oh i'm not sorry so yeah yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well now you're now you're moroccan too i guess so
1: I, but i lived in morocco many years i should qualify for citizenship too
0: <laughs> you should yeah you should be a triple citizen yeah, yeah
1: i love morocco too huh
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I wish I could actually have Palestinian and Moroccan citizenship. Those would be at the top of my list, actually, for second passports. uh, Really? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I I love Morocco. I I lived there for a full year, and I visited many times. And of course, Palestine is uh, very dear to my heart as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's the that's the center of, (laughs) of the struggle against evil right now in the world, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so, what what about this this World Cup? craziness where the the wokesters, the western wokesters are uh, ferociously angry at Qatar, which is a pretty west-friendly Arab country, for for not being woke enough, not having enough genders, not embracing degeneracy, not having alcohol everywhere for the westerners. Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, just the minor thing. They just overlook over everything. Number one, you know, I mean, uh, Qatar really has invested a lot of money Almost all the money has been invested in the World Cup, has been invested in the infrastructure, okay? Mm -hmm. And not only just in the stadium. So the thing about that, they say, you know, a lot of money has been wasted. It's not true, okay? Qatar really began to really rebuild itself in, uh, in the last 12 years. And Qatar has played a very, very active and supportive role of the United States. In bringing about, you know, some kind of an agreement with the Taliban, it was the major, the major hub for uh, the American evacuation from Afghanistan. It has uh, hosted a number of uh, peace conferences. The last one about Chad, okay, and it has played a very, very major role, really, actually, in support of uh, of U.S. policy, huh? Peace policy, not a war policy, but a peace policy, and I just don't see why the West is so uh, um, angry, you know, about what because of the because of the gender they want to um, really push the issue of the LBGT on a, a conservative society all of a sudden, and uh, you know they bring out about the uh, the number of people who died uh, building the uh, the the stadium. Well, it's true, you know, people died. Yes, perhaps a thousand died in building the stadium, but so a thousand died in many many other major projects. And um, you know, the building the stadium has been a catalyst for um, Qatar to really reform a lot of its uh, labor laws. Huh? Okay, and uh, you know. Uh, so um, I don't know why is it such a, a really well orchestrated campaign against Qatar, even today in the New York Times. There is nothing, nothing good to say about Qatar, you know, and and, and it's really uh, kind of mind boggling and very disappointing to see such a uh, verocious uh, uh, hate uh, campaign against Qatar. Uh, Qatar, huh? That's true. That, yeah. I mean, I don't understand why. Just because, you know, I mean, like the uh, say, who, who, who was it? Um, someone famous said that, well, you know, if you could not um, uh, enjoy a, a game of football without drinking beer, then you have a problem. huh? Mm-hmm. OK. And we saw we saw in England and France and other places, you know, these hooligans and the, the thugs that got drunk uh, at these games. And, you know, also some countries in Europe, they ban alcohol in the stadium. So I don't know why this campaign uh, to force Qatar to allow uh, uh, to allow alcohol in a stadium at the same time is that to force this issue of, uh, you know, uh, LBGT uh, on uh, on such a traditional society in uh, of Qatar or
0: the Muslim world, huh? You know, I I, I wonder if it's because these issues, these woke, uh, especially these gender and LGBT type issues are now becoming sort of the new ideological rationale for what's left of American imperialism. We see this in the fight with Russia, that uh, the Russians in general, and of course Vladimir Putin has spoken about this very eloquently, Uh, don't accept this stuff, and neither does much of the world. So the West, and and particularly the the fully American-occupied parts of the West, such as Western Europe, are maybe defining themselves in opposition to the rest of the world by very loudly identifying with these kinds of decadent uh, cultural tendencies.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, myself, okay, I... You know, I accept it as a fact of life. Okay, no one can deny it doesn't exist. Okay, it has been in existence since uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so it's nothing new. And in the United States, only recently, during the time of Clinton, it was the uh, uh, don't don't show, don't tell. Okay, and only recently, you know, it became a possible that, that was
0: don't ask, don't tell, but definitely uh-huh. don't show.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the thing about it's a it's a recent thing that, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, you know, homosexual, homosexual act has become uh, accepted uh, in the community and uh, the law. But to have such to sponsor such a campaign around the world on this issue, when there are so many other important issues, such as, you know, poverty, hunger. Uh, enslavement, uh, 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 occupation, uh, uh, wars that killed uh, millions of people. Nobody is saying anything about it except the right for uh, you know to have uh, uh, sodomy sex. I don't, I don't get it.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of puzzling to me too, and um, it's also I think there's sort of a, a cultural difference from you know between the the Muslim world. And the modern or today's West, in the way that this issue is is seen and defined, and I've tried to explain this to Western people that in uh, in the Islamic culture, and I think to some extent, some Western cultures were more like this in the past. It's there's no idea of a person being identified as somebody who enjoys sodomy, for example, or somebody who likes this or that type of sexual predilection. That's not the way identity is constructed. That instead, uh, these, rather than a matter of identity, it's viewed as a kind of a sin, uh, a sinful act. And the issue is the actual sexual act. It's not the person or the identity of the person. And Pretty much anybody is theoretically, uh, could, could possibly commit that kind of sin. Just like with alcohol. Anybody could theoretically drink alcohol, but that's a sin, a particular type of sin. And then the, so, the homosexual acts or sodomy are a, a much, a worse kind of sin and that's it's so it's seen as a type of behavior and a kind of a sinful behavior but it's very strange to people from muslim cultures and i'm sure it would be strange to people from western cultures a few hundred years ago to have people actually identifying themselves primarily by the fact that they have a predilection for a certain kind of sin that's just very mind-boggling uh and in fact science i think is closer to the islamic view than to the western view that is this it's not the science doesn't tell us that there's a certain type of person that's exclusively uh created somehow to be homosexual and rather human sexuality exists on a spectrum and indeed You know, most sexual urges are fleeting and obviously cannot be acted upon. So nobody in their right mind would just identify themselves with some type of sexual urge that it's or some type of of preference for a particular type of sexuality. That's just bizarre. So it's I think that's it's kind of a an illustration of how the contemporary West has gone somewhat insane uh, in in the post Freudian era. And I think it's a symptom of decadence and a symptom that Western culture has post Christian Western culture has sort of run its 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 race and is now in its death throes and that what comes next will probably be something from the rest of the world that used to, formerly was left behind by the very vibrant post Christian Western culture which is now dying and what comes next will probably maybe it'll be a multipolar world with different cultures. That is if the transhumanists don't manage to kill us all off.
1: Yeah, but you know, the thing, the thing about it is that we just have to accept that certain countries or certain faith or certain religion or certain societies have a different moral uh, standards. And so, you know, we, no one should really push one ideology or, on the others, okay? In the United States, okay, it's legal, it's fine, no problem, we have to accept it. But we have to accept it legally, but we we do not have to accept it morally huh? or religiously, so nobody can force me to accept it in my faith or in my uh, culture. so but I accept it as a legal uh, uh, issue that has been approved uh, you know as a law. but the issue I have here is that. You know, the contradictions of this moral issue, uh, you know, when North Carolina uh, voted against the uh, the use of the toilet. OK, you remember a couple of years ago, right, there was a big issue about the the use of toilet in high school huh? and uh, around the country, you know, sport teams, conventions, uh, uh, organizations, they boycotted North Carolina over this issue. And yet. They say nothing about let's say the two million people in Gaza who have been besieged and imprisoned by Israel for twelve years. they've been killed and bombed and destroyed every day, and nobody say anything. in fact, okay, many states they they even pass legislation that any boycott of Israel is illegal when in fact a boycott of North Carolina was not illegal. You can you explain it? I mean, just can you
0: explain? It? Yeah. O- only through mass insanity. <laughs> yeah, a, I, mean, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know the thing about it, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, no, I, I think, I think the the issue with Qatar is um, is envious, You know, I mean, could you imagine? I today, I, uh, I read an article in the. Uh, Uh, New York Times, how how decadent the uh, royal family of uh, Qatar with their billions of dollars when, in fact, one man, one man, Elon Musk, he has over three trillion dollars. How did he get it? You know, Mm -hmm. and nobody say anything about it. Nobody say anything about one man amazing such money. In such a short time, in 20 years, Elon Musk is worth about 200 or $300 billion. And nobody say anything about it.
0: Well, Alex, yet, Alex Jones is worth a trillion, or at least that's what they, they claim. Yeah, it's- a
1: trillion, yeah, it's a trillion, <laughs> not trillion. I mean, trillion. So, so the thing about it is that why is it that people are envious of the people and the Gulf having money, okay? I mean, you know, it's about time. Nobody, nobody uh, uh, accused the United States of decadence when it has all the money and all the power and all the technology and all the arms and all the aircraft carriers and all the wealth. Okay. And, you know, there are so many wealthy people in the United States that uh, what I I could say maybe, maybe they are uh, uh, worth more than 98% of the world. Mm
0: Well, I, I think that's a legitimate problem, whether it's in Qatar or the United States, although it's probably a, a much more significant problem in the United States because, you know, Qatar is a small country. So that's it. The influence it has on the world is, is modulated by its being relatively small. The United States is a, is a very big and powerful country that's been trying to dominate the world. And the fact that our system here in the United States <clears throat> allows for a corrupt mafia of billionaire oligarchs to basically buy up all the power. And buy up all the politicians and write the laws to favor themselves. And incidentally, because uh, a ridiculously high percentage of them happen to be ethnically Jewish and virtually all of those are radical Zionists, they have hijacked US foreign policy and uh, created immense uh, destruction and suffering and and harmed America's own interests, there are all sorts of problems with the fact that we Americans tolerate this billionaire oligarchy to run our country, and we would be much better off if we followed Bernie Sanders or even further than that, and uh, asked why there should even be any billionaires in the first place, and then confiscated their ill-gotten gains. Obviously, all the social media companies, starting with uh, Facebook and including Twitter, should be... Uh, immediately seized by the U.S. government under a state of national emergency and run under the First Amendment because we're in a, a free speech emergency right now as these oligarchs have taken over our modern public square and impose censorship. And even though Musk is doing a little better than some of the other oligarchs, there's no question that the public square should be the public square. It should be publicly owned. It should be part of our public infrastructure, as should so much else, including our energy infrastructure, which shouldn't be run by private oil oligarchs. Our banking infrastructure should be public banking. right? So so our problem is not the rich people in Qatar. Our problem is the rich people in the United States.
1: Exactly. I mean, you know, the thing about it that just look at uh, let's say a company like g e uh, uh, it made about uh, twenty billion dollars and paid zero money in taxes that's unconscionable, and the same thing with the oil industry okay they're not paying any taxes and yet the poor man who works uh you know fifteen hours a day he has to pay taxes and i I agree with you I think that let's say uh, uh, organization uh public uh, Media like uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, LinkedIn—they are really controlling the uh, the uh, the public square, huh? okay? The free speech. I I was I was censored um, by uh, LinkedIn uh, because I referred to the uh, to the Israeli settlers as terrorists. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
0: really? <laughs> oh, my yeah. So
1: I, I I was censored by them when in fact. You know, uh, Israeli, uh, other Jewish um, writers, they refer to them as terrorists. But yet when I say that, OK, I was censored by LinkedIn. And of course, you know, I canceled my uh, subscription to Lincoln. And I uh, I also um, canceled my subscription to Twitter and with Facebook a long time ago, because I think what we needed, as you said, is that these these organizations should be the public square of free speech for our citizens. No censorship, because any time that you mention Israel or you mention Zionism or stuff like that, okay, then you are censored. You know, we need, we need a Hyde Park corner in every town and every city, okay,
0: uh, to I give agree. Uh, a that... chance,
1: to yeah. give the people a chance to stand up and speak out.
0: Yeah, that's part of the good side of the American tradition that's been progressively lost. You think there's a racist element to the way that the New York Times and other uh, people with a megaphone here in the United States are sort of not only allowed but encouraged to deplore the wealth of the rulers of Qatar. They don't like Arabs having money. And yet, if you talk about Jews having money, uh, like people like Kanye West uh, has, and Kyrie Irving uh, and Dave Chappelle, even uh, that you know, it's it's just a simple fact that according to studies that I've seen, uh, the average Jewish American has about double the average annual income of the average non-Jewish American. And according to other studies I've seen, among the very wealthiest Americans, that is the the billionaire class, uh, something close to half of those people are ethnically Jewish. Now, if you even mention this, you're likely to be censored and you'll be run out of town and you'll never work in this town again. Uh, however, you're encouraged to yap about the, uh, the rich Arabs and how sad it is that the, there are all these rich Arabs running around. And, and uh, you know, the amount of wealth controlled by the rich Arabs is, is nothing really compared to that, uh, controlled by Western Jews. But you can't even mention the, the Jewish wealth. Uh, there's got to be some kind of racist double standard going on here.
1: Well, there's no question about I mean, no question in my mind, it's all about racism huh? and envy. It's all about racism and envy. Why is it that, you know, I mean, with, uh, with uh, Qatar has its state fund, I think uh, about $400 uh, uh, billion dollars in, uh, in uh, state fund. And uh, everybody is envious of it when, you know, one man, one man uh, must, he has trillions. And nobody say anything about it. Why is it? Why is it? I just don't, I, I just don't get it. We don't, we talk about the Arabs having money. Okay. Well, maybe it's time for them to have some money. Nothing wrong. They have lived in this desert for a long time with, with even no water. Huh? So why are we so envious about it? You know?
0: And and they don't have that much money. Yes, there there are some very wealthy Arabs, but there are also a lot of poor Arabs and middle class Arabs too. It's not like the Arab society is so rich.
1: Not all Arab society is rich, but you know, for Qatar, okay, the 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 people of Qatar, the native or the people who have Qatari nationality, I mean, they have so many things free for them. We wish that we have at least at least a good. Health insurance for ourselves. You know, when I got sick with my cancer, it cost me two hundred and twenty thousand dollars.
0: Really? That's a, that was in street. the United States.
1: Yeah, in the United States. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess the U.S. is the last uh, wealthy country without a national health service. And
1: yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good thing that I I um, I have been paying. Uh, a private insurance for a long time, okay? And of course, you know, Social Security is helping a lot. But imagine, imagine that one person like me, okay, with a course of treatment of about seven months had to pay $220,000. And I still get one shot every six months, cost $8,000.
0: That's adding insult to injury. Well, I'm sorry you've had to go through that, Sammy. That yeah. sounds horrible. So,
1: so the thing about it that, you know, New York Times, The Guardians, and all those people and pundits who are talking about, uh, you know, uh, Qatar or attacking Qatar, they should really uh, look inward, huh? Look at England, the poverty in England, the poverty in the United States. What about the farm workers' rights, okay, in California and in Florida? Everybody forgot that there was a big, big fight, okay, with Chavez, okay, leading the fight to get some rights for these people, for these migrant workers. Nobody talk about it. You know, they only talk about the number of people who who died uh, in uh, in Qatar. And it's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. And uh, there is no excuse for it. Okay. But at the same time is that we have to look at other uh, 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 cases, you know, and uh, colonialism in uh, in Africa. What the French did in, uh, in Morocco and what they did in France, killing really millions of people, okay? And uh, the Belgium and Belgium, Congo, 10 million people uh, killed, okay? In India, you know, the British, they just shot a number of people, uh, I don't know how many, maybe a couple thousands uh, in the back, and nobody talked about it. Just simply nobody talked about it. In Vietnam, 3 million people died. Nobody talk about it. In Afghanistan and Iraq, one million people died. Nobody talk about it.
0: Yeah, there's a double standard there in with the uh, Holocaust and genocides. I've had Gideon Paglia on the show many times. He's an Australian scientist who's a specialist in comparative Holocaust and genocides. He's from a, a Jewish background himself. And he's talked about how the, the Bengal famine, so-called, during World War II, was really a deliberate British extermination. Of some, what's it, 10 million, a huge number of people. The, uh, the so-called Irish potato famine was also a British-engineered deliberate genocide of Ireland. And these kinds, uh, this, these are just a couple. You mentioned a whole long list as well. And in all of those areas, uh, they're, they're, the, the free speech rules in the United States seemingly allow people to say positive things about the British Empire, and to refer to the uh, potato genocide as just a famine, uh, to talk about British policy in World War II and ignore the Bengal Holocaust and so on. In other words, you can basically say anything you want and deny, you can even deny these holocausts and genocides or minimize them. You know, Turkish people are always kind of minimizing what happened to the Armenians, and the Armenians, of course, are... That's true, unfortunately. Right, and and the Armenians are maximizing it. And so there's a, a you know, free speech seems to apply to every Holocaust and genocide throughout all of human history, except one, and that's the incomparable magic six million Holocaust, which actually probably is the most the received version of that is probably the most exaggerated of all of the received versions of any of the Holocaust and genocides around. But you're not. That's probably the reason you're not allowed to talk about it, because if you have a free discussion of it, suddenly not only will it become not so incomparable and we'll see that there were all of these other Holocaust and genocides that were actually much worse. But we'll learn that most but, of you. What know, we... uh, you <laughs> know, you okay. know,
1: Kevin. I tell you, I mean, we just have to admit that what happened in Germany, you know, whether it's six million or not, it is just unconscionable, huh? Okay. And we, yes, we must not forget that. We must not really forget that. But at the same time, let's not make excuses for others.
0: Mm, that's okay? true. You, you, well, yeah, that's, it, it was unconscionable, bit, but but know? but the other the. the... War crimes committed by other sides during World War II were at least equally unconscionable. That is, if 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 we accept the revisionist view of the Holocaust, according to which the actual number of victims was much lower than six million, that the get mass gas chambers were a fiction that there were no mass gas chambers, and that there was no yeah. deliberate extermination policy, that instead the plan was to get Jews out of the Reich, and indeed there were all kinds of massacres, deaths, some of them the fault of the Germans, Some, the majority probably because there was no more food or fuel left during the last uh, year of the war. Uh, Well, you know... know, If if we take that, if if the revisionists are right about that, and I don't know if they're right or not, but I've read enough to know that there's a pretty good case that they very well might be, then comparing that to the fire bombings of Dresden and Tokyo uh, and other cities and the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and uh, what the Japanese did, not in China, in the POW camps, and so on and so forth, the Germans end up, looking like, yeah, there were criminals and the racism against Jews was terrible, the racism against gypsies and their general... That's true,
1: ra- that's true. Uh, we right. have to admit, we have to admit there was racism and the Holocaust was an ob- obnoxious crime against humanity. There's no question whether, you know, whether it's 2 million or 5 million, whatever, okay? Mm-hmm. When you target certain people for death, then there's a problem, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. to me. So for me, uh, the Holocaust is a is a subject that I uh, uh, I keep in mind because of the fact that as a result of the Holocaust, the state of Israel was founded. Okay. And as of the result of the Holocaust, you know, the Palestinians were exiled. Okay. But let's not forget what happened in two towns like Hamburg, Dresden, you know, Tokyo. Okay what happened to the Japanese invasion of Southeast Asia and the hundreds of thousands of people killed, okay? The number of people who got killed in World War I by the civilized European, okay? You know, using uh, mustard gas and napalms, okay? So I have a problem. I have a problem with all this, you know, contradiction of Western morality, yeah? I really have a problem and nobody like i said nobody say anything about uh, about these crimes they just forget it so uh,
0: uh yeah know. it seems like the the, the other side's crimes uh, have been mythologized and so it seems to me that many of the worst abuses of us and israeli policy since world war 2 have been driven by this myth that we were the good guys and the germans were absolute evil and so now, basically, we have uh, a carte blanche to do whatever we want. And I think the Israelis have had that attitude. The Americans have to some extent had that attitude too. And it's really led to a degradation of the morality of the way that, you know, they, of course, what Israel, this slow motion genocide that Israel is perpetrating in Palestine. And of course, the American imperial uh, holocaust, which according to Noam Chomsky, and uh, and Andre Volcek, who wrote this book on Western terrorism, they total up about 60 million uh, deaths of civilians for the most part as a result of these u.S military and CIA interventions since World War II. So if the u.S has massacred 60 million since World War II, that's ten times the uh, <laughs> official number of the, the Jewish Holocaust in World War II. yeah. No, Yeah. And, and we've, and we've done that because we are intoxicated with the view that we are the good guys. And why do we have that view? Well, in part because of this public myth about World War II, which is actually just not true. The Germans were not the entire, the the villains in World War II. World War II was a lot more complex than that. So I, I think that one of the reasons we're prohibited from talking about World War II and the Holocaust is that if we had a free discussion of it, we would quickly learn that we weren't the good guys, and suddenly this this mytholo- mythological rationale for American imperialism and Zionism would disappear, and that that's why there are these hate speech laws across Europe. That's that's why anybody who talks about the Holocaust and World War Two gets fired, their career gets ruined. It's because the facts don't support the myth, and they can't allow us to discuss the facts.
1: Well, I think myself, you know, I think that anti-Semitism is driven uh, by Western Europe, okay? I think that Western Europe is perhaps the most anti-Semitic of all organization. From the the 15th century, England barred the Jews from England, okay? And throughout Western Europe, the Jews have been chased out and, you know, uh, only the Muslim world welcomed them, okay? So, but the, you know, again, you know, the, the issue of, we have to look well, at what well, happened. Sammy,
0: let, let me stop you there. Why do you think it is that the Muslim world actually has, has had a lot less conflict between the dominant societies and the Jewish communities um, than, than the Western world and many other parts of the world have?
1: Because I tell you, I mean, the Muslims, as a Muslim, we are not anti-Semitic. I think that anti-Semitism is a Western culture. It's a Western value driven by the West, okay, of their hate for the Jews, okay? And the Arab world is not driven by, by anti Semitism like the, uh, in Europe, okay? I mean, the history of Western Europe is shameful when it comes to the treatment of the Jews. Look at the Jews in Spain, in, in Muslim Spain, in uh, the Ottoman Empire, huh? and in Morocco. And in many countries where where the the Jews have lived in dignity and respect, okay, and there has never been any movement of anti-Semitism. There is a movement only after the establishment of Israel of anti-Zionism, but never really anti-Semitic, as in Europe.
0: Well, this the, is my view. the Zionists actually had to go and persecute Jews in Morocco, and iraq among other places in order to try to get them to go to israel that's what that's a little known fact that it's kind of surprising when you first encounter it that it turns out that that the zionists who wanted the jews of the world to come uh to invade palestine they actually had false flag terrorism against jews in iraq and morocco and indeed there was do you you know the story of the ship that apparently the zionists sunk full of uh, Moroccan uh, Jews uh, who who were heading for Israel, they actually sunk a ship and killed a few hundred people in order to create an international incident to essentially force the king of Morocco to allow the Zionists to use force and and persuasion and money and so on to essentially terrorize Jews of Morocco. Yeah, but deleting. I tell
1: you, I mean, the thing about it, that Morocco is an excellent model of uh, existence, huh? between Jews, Muslim and Christians. It's really a country that has such a a diverse culture. Okay. And, you know, um, uh, it's made every effort to make sure that the the Jewish community is well taken well taken care of by renovating synagogues and by, you know, uh, the uh, the king just established a commission uh, for uh, uh, Jewish community and I think Morocco is a great model okay for a uh, coexistence between Jews, Arabs and Muslims and Amazir. So I really wish that everybody would take a look at the model of Morocco okay and see how can people uh, Muslim Arabs and Christians and Amazir and other ethnic groups can Really coexist in such a country. It's really, really, really something to be very proud of.
0: Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit more about your work in Morocco. You you have a a wildlife uh, preserve, or you're you're managing it. Um, can you tell yeah, us a little more about yeah, that?
1: Yeah, we, um, you know, I was the first one to establish a um, a wildlife preserve to to breed a an endangered species which is native to Morocco and North Africa, it's called the Hobara Bastard. And I established this center in Agadir, uh, Morocco in 1992 and it was sponsored by the uh, the uh, late uh, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Prince Sultan. And we established two centers, one in Agadir and one in Rashidia. And uh, uh, then the uh, the uh, Arab Emirates, they came in and they established a very big center in uh, Mysore, in Morocco, with about um, 800. And um, they're producing thousands of hubara, which is an endangered species. And so here we are in the south of Morocco. I've been here five years, and um, we have established a... Um, a Hobara breeding center and we are doing very well at producing thousands and releasing thousands into the wilds. So uh it's a great thing, you know. I mean um um it's a lot of hard work and uh takes some investment we in technology, in genetics and a whole lot of things, huh? So um yes, we are doing a great thing in keeping uh and uh uh, keeping an endangered species from extinction. So we are sending thousands of hobara into the wild. Oh, so that?
0: thanks, That's wonderful. Yeah,
1: thanks to people like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the Arab Emirates uh, who are really investing a lot of money in uh, ensuring that this endangered species is not uh, extinct
0: interesting well that that's kind of the other side of the story as you said there is this prejudice against you know the arab money uh and in fact there is actual philanthropy coming out of the arab world that is often sort of uh, denigrated or ignored and uh so we we should we shouldn't do that and it's uh i i know the the you know morocco is in an interesting position uh kind of geopolitically and as a palestinian in morocco I, I mean, I, I know that in Morocco, there's uh, generally you're allowed to speak freely about just about everything, except uh, that things they're very sensitive about. At one point, were like the the Green March and that issue of the Polisario, uh, which I actually tend to, uh, I find Morocco's point of view on that to be pretty pretty convincing. So uh, I've never had well, a problem you know, with that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I live. I lived in Morocco for many years, and for me, I mean, the Sahara is a a Moroccan territory and no matter what uh, Algeria or the other countries say mm-hmm. okay it is part of morocco historically naturally and um, you know i mean as, as someone who has lived in morocco and i love morocco okay i am 100% for the uh, uh, for what the king uh, has uh, proposed and for the government of morocco has proposed that autonomy within Sovereignty of Morocco, hmm. and uh, you know, uh, uh, Morocco has invested a lot of money, a lot of money in in the uh, in the Sahara, in the Moroccan Sahara, uh, in towns, infrastructure. Perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested since the Green March, which was a great, a great thing to me, at least to me. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so no, I actually, I agree.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe I'm biased, but I am biased. OK, I don't uh, deny it. I'm biased for uh, for Morocco and what it has done uh, uh, in the Sahara and its own country. Huh? It has done a great thing in terms of infrastructure, in terms of roads, uh, hospitals. You go to town like Lyon and Dakhla and uh, Disney and other towns in, uh, in the Moroccan Sahara and you will see the difference. You will see the difference. So the Pulsario, they're just really, you know, renegaded, you know, um, self-serving organization, frankly speaking. I mean, this is my opinion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I actually agree with you on that. You know, when I first did my Fulbright work in Morocco back in 1999 and 2000, I remember that there was kind of a bias among, you know, the, the kind of left leaning, right thinking kinds of, uh, academicians who went to Morocco sort of bought into this narrative of the poor oppressed Polisario and the Sahrawi and so on. And when I looked into it, I wasn't really convinced for some of the reasons that you mentioned. And also the fact that this, uh, this was part of Morocco for centuries that, that. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. It was, you know, I mean, <laughs> Uh, it Morocco has extended all the way to Senegal. The sovereignty of the kings and the Sultan of Morocco have extended all the way to Senegal.
0: Right, and so this 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 idea is <laughs> a historical fact. Right, right, and and, and the other thing I, I noticed was that all this rush to sort of try to break up countries into smaller units and make them weaker uh, and impoverished. Uh, is actually not in the interests of the people of uh of these formerly western colonized regions and so you right it's 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 sort of sort of like the uh the Yanon plan uh for for the middle so called middle east or you know we might call it west asia uh the Yanon plan in is you know, from this israeli thinker uh who wanted to break up the countries in the neighborhood of Israel into smaller units so they would be more amenable to manipulation, exploitation by Israel and they wouldn't pose any security threat. And we see that kind of thing all over where where the West likes to have these smaller countries broken up into small pieces not cooperating with each other so they can be played off against each other and their resources can be exploited more easily. And it seems Absolutely. to me Yeah, so so that's one of the reasons I think that you had this this kind of fake concern with the Sahrawis among the Western liberal left—they yeah, were playing the colonialist hypocrisy. Game. I tell yeah. you,
1: it's nothing but hypocrisy. It's really nothing but hypocrisy. You know, they should come to Morocco and see what Morocco is all about. They should see what the government of Morocco has done in the Sahara, contrary to what Algeria, okay, has done for the Polisario in the area controlled polypolisario its refugee camps come to the south of morocco and you will see cities towns hospitals, roads schools universities all the good life you know the people have never had it better than when morocco really reclaimed back its territory with the green march
0: And it's ironic that Morocco has been able to do that without the kind of oil money and gas money that Algeria has. Algeria has a lot more resources. And yet, as you say, they haven't haven't invested nearly as much. You
1: know, I tell you, in Algeria, the military is looting the country. One hundred billion dollars disappeared during the time of Bouteflika. And could you imagine a country, a country of 40 million people electing a president who was comatose? He did not even make one single statement. They only had his pictures.
0: He he was almost as bad as Biden.
1: Of course. You know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) could you imagine? To me, it's just mind boggling that a country, a country, or, you know, of course it's the military, huh? Okay, that can elect someone who's a comatose. He could not. Well, we we (laughs) elected
0: a bunch of comatose people in the latest American elections.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, they, they put us. Pictures and, and rallies.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Algeria definitely has its problems. It's kind of too bad because it, the Algerian revolution against France was was a pretty heroic struggle. Indeed, of, some of my in laws actually nobody helped did, them.
1: Nobody denied. Nobody yeah. denied. It yeah. was heroic, but unfortunately, it was it was hijacked by the military. Huh? Okay. Right.
0: right. Yeah. Which quickly so, became deeply corrupt. Yeah.
1: I really, I really, you know, as someone who. Loves Morocco, and I am uh, treated very well here and um, you know the uh, the largest demonstration ever in support of Palestinians was in Morocco by the way huh
0: right, but see that that's one of the one of my issues with you know I've been thinking about actually moving to Morocco, and i you know i'm annoyed. one of the reasons I want to move to Morocco is that the United States has become so decadent and depraved and owned by these uh nefarious forces and so on, and the free speech isn't what it used to be. Uh so I'm thinking of going to Morocco. And yet uh something that quickly you know, the the biggest uh negative there that arose in the past several years was when Morocco bought into these so called Abraham Accords. And Yeah,
1: but you know, I mean okay, Morocco has its own reason, okay? But it does not change the fact that Morocco is very supportive of the Palestinian cause, okay? It has its own issues, okay, and uh, its own needs. I mean, for me, this is a subject that, you know, uh, I'm not really, uh, how should I say, competent to speak about it. Definitely, I think the conflict with Algeria has a role in it, but at the same time is that it does not affect of how Morocco is committed to the Arab and the Palestinian cause, you know. So, I mean, so, if I, so Sammy, if,
0: if I move to Morocco and I, I do this radio show and the rest of my uh, work uh, from Morocco, uh, will I be uh, have any problem if I choose to very harshly criticize the Abraham Accords and to call for Morocco to back out of them?
1: Well, you know, I tell you, I mean, this is, I think that this is a sensitive subject. And I would stay away from it. I think that I would have to, to look at, uh, Morocco, what it was has done, okay, uh, uh, for its people, you know, the development, the investment in, in towns and cities and education and, and hospitals and roads and, uh, uh housing, uh, the investment it made in, uh, in, uh, in its Sahara. So there are a lot of lot of positive issues to talk about in Morocco. So think about that. You should concentrate on that. If, and, if I go know. to
0: Morocco, I should try try to focus on the positive in Morocco. You're saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that you should. Yeah, yeah, really. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's enough
0: to criticize in a lot of other parts of the world. that I suppose I could get away with that. And it's true that the Moroccan people are very pro-Palestinian. You know, I'd feel much very, more comfortable you,
1: there. Very, very. Yeah. I tell you, I you know, I can say that. The love I have uh, from the people of Morocco, and like I said, I've been here for many years, and I'm very, very proud to to uh, to be in Morocco, and I consider Morocco my second home, frankly speaking, because I have seen nothing but good things from the from the people, huh? And the way I have been treated, both as a Palestinian and as an American, huh? Okay.
0: Yes, I
1: tell you, you could not imagine. How great the country is, for God's sake! The diversity, you know, just the diversity. You know, you can see the 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 different um, uh, uh, color of people, huh? From the very white, you know, to the very black, okay, and in the same house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. that's
0: true. If that's you, yeah, you, in, mean, in my in-laws, my my, my right. My, my wife has uh, siblings who range from being. Fairly, you know, from brown to blonde and blue eyed. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is only in Morocco. I mean, as I, as I go, you know, to a coffee shop or to a restaurant and I see families and the different colors, where can anywhere in the world, in the United States or in France or in Germany, can we say that, you know, such a great racial integration of communities?
0: Mm-hmm. And the, 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 else the else. languages are kind of cool, too. There's a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, everybody's language, at least you know, bilingual. Okay, the yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, everybody forget that the Amazigh they constitute about maybe 40 percent of the population. OK. And many they speak, uh, you know, Amazigh. And uh, uh, I was in Agadir uh, about a week ago and uh, I attended a concert or a concert of 420 choralists from france and morocco huh? and they sang french and amazonian music it was wonderful you know it was wonderful just to see this kind of a diversity and richness of culture and tradition you know uh kevin you could not imagine how beautiful it is when the people on the day of the eid huh? And all of them, they dressed in the traditional Moroccan costume. Huh?
0: yes, I, I've, I've done and that. They
1: go to the yeah. prayer. Yes, it yeah. is fantastic. It's beautiful. Yes, you
0: know? I, I, I kind of missed that. The uh, yeah Eid in Morocco is uh, is wonderful. It's
1: a beautiful thing, you know. The the Eid in Morocco, the the cultural things. Okay, is that the tradition, even the the architect, you know, of all. Of all the Arab countries, Morocco and perhaps Tunisia and to some extent Algeria have kept a, a, um, uh, an architectural tradition of Morocco. Huh?
0: That's of, right. Of the, the, the tiles, the, the arabesque yeah. tiles are, are beautiful. Exactly. Yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah. Not like, you know, like in, unfortunately in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and all the others, you know, it's all Western builders. you know, California style, um, Hollywood style. In Morocco is different, huh?
0: That's right, and, and there's a living Islamic tradition in Morocco that's uh, appeals to me it too. There, there.
1: Yeah, uh, it's you know, really you know yeah. there's such a, a spiritual things on a Friday, a Friday, you know, a Friday uh, prayer, okay, on the Eid prayer, and Ramadan, and Ramadan, such a beautiful, beautiful sense of uh, tranquility you feel in the streets, you know.
0: That's true. Uh,
1: and the shops and
0: the uh, uh, and the uh, and the mosque, huh? That's right. Okay. I, I, one of one of my memories of Morocco is mosque hopping, uh, because in in the United States, some people talk about bar hopping, where they drink alcohol in one bar and they go to another bar and they stay out late. Well, on the night of power in uh, Ramadan in Morocco, which is, I guess, they observed it on the twenty seventh night of Ramadan, if I recall correctly people go from mosque to mosque and stay up all night praying yes, in yes, all of the mosques yes, in the city yeah. or as many as you yes, can possibly yeah, get yeah. to. And it's, they, they, you know, say that there's blessing or this kind of a uh, uh, mystical energy or baraka that you, you can kind of partake of the baraka of each of these different mosques. And so staying up all night, going from mosque to mosque and praying in all these different mosques, praying, you know, Tarawee prayers and, and so on is, is a, uh, was really an amazing experience. There are a lot of things like that. Yeah. So if, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, you'll I talk me you into moving back there.
1: <laughs> yeah, Islam Islam in Morocco is such a beautiful thing, you know. For me, it's the kind of Islam I like. It's a tolerant, it's open, it's encompassing, you know, of people. They accept diversity and everything else, huh? Okay? You know, it's not like the Islam that we saw in in Saudi Arabia in the um, late seventies and eighties, huh? Okay. Mm-hmm that created the Mujahideen and all the others, huh? That's okay, true. Yeah, Islam they, they, in Morocco yeah. is a, it's a spiritual. It's a spiritual. You can see it, you know, in the sense of this in the sense of sense of decency of the people, huh? Okay.
0: Yeah, there's and there's, and there's an intellectual
1: The government too. sponsorship of such a tolerant faith, you know? Okay? The king as the 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 Amir al Mu'manin, you know the Prince of the Believer, he is also plays a key role in the defining of what kind of Islam
0: uh, we have in Morocco.
1: And thanks to him, this kind of a, a tolerant Islam exists.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was there doing my dissertation work, as I recall, uh, uh, there was a, a well-known scholar named uh, Ahmed Tawfiq, who specializes in Moroccan history and particularly in the history of Moroccan uh, Sufism and the uh, you know, other religious schools of thought. And he ended up being made uh, the minister of al Kaf, as I recall. And so yep. the, the religious establishment in Morocco does seem uh, erudite and that the School of thought that they embrace does appeal to me more than um, than some of the other ones. So yeah, it's it's a it's a very uh, beautiful kind of Islam, and there's a traditional culture that's still alive in Morocco. And I guess that's part of you know bringing it back to where we started. The attacks on Qatar seem to be attacks uh, against any having any kind of boundaries related to one's traditional culture. And maybe the West is jealous because it's lost its heritage, its traditional culture, and so it's attacking the Islamic traditional culture. And maybe, uh, maybe we need to be a little more genuinely tolerant. And <laughs> but- you know,
1: uh, Kevin, the West would just only love to see a one-eyed Arab terrorist. That's what they want to see. Mm-hmm. Really, this is what they want to see. They like to see Arab terrorists. They don't like to see Arabs having fun, you know, enjoying life, Uh, streets, uh, subways, hospitals, clinics, uh, schools, universities, research, you know, um, 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 uh, science and everything else. They just don't like that. They just want to see the ugly Arab.
0: Unfortunately, I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, and that's you know it's it's partly a it's edward said wrote about how these kinds of stereotypes evolved historically in in orientalism it's
1: all about orientalism yeah. It's all about orientalism that's all huh yeah you know? yeah there is such a, there is such a uh, historical uh, uh, intolerance and uh, uh, hate you know for the uh, for the uh, arab and muslim east
0: and, and even these okay. countries like uh, Qatar and to some extent Morocco that have kind of taken a balanced policy on many of these issues and tried to tried to play the role of interlocutor and to try to solve some of these problems. And you know, Qatar has actually you know done that. They've. Uh, they've uh, tried to, to work positively on the israeli palestinian conflict they've tried to work positively in the conflict between the ikhwan the muslim brotherhood and its enemies in the region and they've, yes. they've generally tried tried to play a positive role and this is the way they get paid back
1: <laughs> very you know i mean just just look what happened okay during the evacuation of thousands of people from afghanistan where they came from they came to Qatar, okay? You know, and Qatar made, it, made its country and uh, it available to help all these people, huh? to repatriate them to different countries. So Qatar, even though it's a small country, but I think that it's a, it plays a very good role model, okay, of what an Arab country should be like. It's a small in population, but I think it's a grand in its vision for a world peace. This is the way I see Qatar, you know?
0: Okay. Well, that's the counter view, uh, to this, uh, stuff we're hearing in the mainstream media. And I think, uh, <laughs> what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Sami Jamil Jadbala. I appreciate your. Uh wise words. <laughs> Somebody speaking uh speaking some some truth to this media nonsense that we're inundated with all the time. Uh so thank you again. And I look forward to all seeing right. you maybe uh inshallah. I'll I'll see you in Morocco sometime. Inshallah inshallah. Welcome back to Morocco, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> inshallah. Thanks. As-salamu